Welcome to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. If you love old movies, Hollywood history, or the golden age of filmmaking, you've come to the right place. This is the podcast that talks about amazing stories of Tinseltown from another era and fascinating conversations with writer-producer Steve Kubine and actress-writer Nan McNamara. So, Steve, did Ava Gardner and Howard Hughes have a good relationship? Well, they did until he dislocated her jaw. What? Well, don't worry. She hit him back with an ashtray. From Beneath the Hollywood Sign is the gin joint for you. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a PhD holding historian, a professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that makes legit, seriously researched American history come to life through entertaining stories. Join me for a chronological telling of the United States story, from the revolution to fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way from 1776 to the early 20th century. Listen to History That Doesn't Suck on Spotify. On this episode of Most Notorious, a serial killer who terrorized late 1960s Michigan, John Norman Collins, the original co-ed killer. Once she gets into the car, he takes off. Uh, She can't get out. He's driving like a madman. Uh, There are a couple of uh, people that see him and her together. They're able to identify the car, and then she disappears. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast. I'm Eric Rivenis. Before we begin, I want to suggest that you listen to this episode with some caution. If you are sensitive to detailed descriptions of a series of particularly heinous murders, let's begin. My guest today is once again one of Michigan's finest historians, Gregory Fournier. He was on just a few weeks ago to talk about the Purple Gang, and he is back to chat about his most popular book. It is called Terror in Ypsilanti, John Norman Collins Unmasked. Thank you so much for coming on one more time. Oh, I'm I'm pleased to do it. You have a personal connection to this case, don't you? Yeah, I have, and it's very oblique, uh, except in the emotional end of a connection uh, that I have with the story. But uh, real quickly, he uh, lived a block down the street, uh, John Norman Collins, and uh, I had to pass his house repeatedly daily going back and forth to campus at Eastern Michigan University. Of course, I didn't know, and uh, very few uh, people knew what John was up to, and uh, he was responsible for the deaths, uh, the murders of uh, seven women. Uh, Some are university students, uh, and then there were a couple of teenagers as well. And he was kind of like the boy next door. Well, my first brush with him was walking down the street with, uh, with my girlfriend. We'd gone shopping at the grocery store, walking up to the apartment. And he and two other uh, people uh, in a car pulled up and uh, 
you know, started harassing us. And it was dark and really dark streets uh, in Ypsilanti and uh, old, uh, 150, 100 year old neighborhood and all the, the uh, trees and everything, uh, very old and grown and just very, very dark at night. And so basically these guys uh, wanted <laughs> my girlfriend to go off with them for who knows uh, what and of course uh, uh, she wasn't buying that and neither was I so I said hey baby come and leave that uh, whatever and they made some kind of uh, negative vulgar remark about me and she just tied into him and he got real angry and he was driving and uh, hit the gas uh, he'd like to spin his wheels that was kind of one of his signature moves when he was frustrated and it comes up two or three times uh, in the book with uh, other situations. But uh, that was my first encounter. Another time was just to simply uh, walking down the street, and I see him and another guy, uh, a guy who was in a, the same rooming house as him. And uh, they had a uh, theft crew, uh, three or four people, uh, and they go around robbing here and there. Well, I saw two of them trying to break into a car, and I took a kind of a hard look and stood there for a minute. And then I, uh, you know, went off to this pizzeria and said, hey, anybody have a car around the side? These two guys are trying to break into it. Nobody knew anything about it. So I walked out again. And I'm in front of the pizzeria. He comes by and he, he tries to clothesline me with his arm. And I jumped down and, you know, turn around defensively. And he just kept walking like nothing happened. It was very strange. I kind of kept an eye on him, and, uh, you know, I saw him walk across the street and into uh, a house. So at least now I know where the guy lives, but I still don't know his name or anything about him. And uh, it wasn't until the day he was arrested, I'm walking back from class, and I see a lot of police cars, at least half a dozen of several different varieties, the state police, the city police were there, and the county police, and a crowd had just started uh, to gather, and there were, you know, a few press, uh, you know, out there trying to get the story. And so I walked up and, hey, what's going on? And somebody says, oh, this is the guy they think who's killing all those uh, co-eds, and uh, they just arrested him. And by the time I got home, Saw the evening news. His, his face was all over the television, of course, on the front pages of all the local newspapers that I put two and two together and said, that's the guy. And that left an impression on me. And I wrote the book 50 years later. So uh, <laughs> that is almost a story in and of itself. But uh, I, I wanted to tell what I knew about the story because a previous book written just five years after these events happened changed the names of the victims. They changed John Collins's name, which provided cover for him as far as the uh, the local Ypsilanti history went. It, it became very obscured and confused. And all those years later, after I had retired, written my first book, and I was wondering, what am, what's my next project going to be? I thought it's, it's one block down the street from where I lived in college. And uh, I started doing the research and got deeper and deeper into it. 
met some of the families of a couple of the victims uh, of the seven victims. There were only two families uh, that would uh, talk to me, but uh, you know, I, it, it really created such a personal connection that I'm almost more involved with the story than I would have been otherwise. And I got to meet so many people connected with it, police, friends, relatives, and and people that you know who I knew because uh, I grew up in that uh, you know was going to college in that same neighborhood which we called at the time the student ghetto because you could get a cheap apartment in an uh, old hundred year rooming house and so there were lots of us uh, no GDI you know independent people as opposed to uh, fraternity people, sorority people, and then there were the GDIs, you know, the goddamn independence is what uh, <laughs> that stands for. So, uh, long answer. <laughs> so, so let's move right into the case. Can you walk us through the murders, one by one, who the victims were and the circumstances of their deaths? Yeah, yeah I can do that. Uh, well, the first uh, murder that we know of, and uh, there may have been others, uh, none have ever uh, prior to the first uh, murder in uh, 1967. So, you know, we're going back a ways. July 9th, 1967, a 19-year-old sophomore, uh, Ju- uh, Mary Fleischer, went for a walk. It was a very, very hot evening, and... She decided that uh, 8.30 uh, at night that she was going to take a walk through the neighborhoods because her apartment was just sweltering. And uh, she did that and never returned to the apartment. The next morning, uh, her mother called her and the roommate said, Mary went out for a walk last night, but she never returned. And, of course, the phone call was made to the police, and there was a dragnet, and they, they did everything, the police, to, to try and, and find her. And she laid out in a farm field for 30 days, dead. And a couple of boys, uh, teenagers, happened to be at that uh, farm field, and they... Uh, we're, we're going to uh, have some gas filling up a tractor. They were going to plow the field for uh, some reason or do something with the a tractor. And uh, they hear a car door slam. And they say, huh, I wonder you know, what that is. So they kind of sneak up. The weeds are real high. And because this was a whole lover's lane area between two universities, the University of Michigan, Eastern Michigan University. And, you know, you go out with your girlfriend, especially if you lived in the dorms or you couldn't get any privacy. You'd take your car out to one of these abandoned, abandoned farms and, you know, you'd make out and pet and, you know, whatever else was going on. So these teenagers thought, hey, maybe we'll catch some action here. And so they tried to crawl up, uh, and, and to look, and just as, uh, you know, we're getting kind of close, they heard the car door slam again and take off, and they went out, and they didn't see anything. So they're going back to do their work, 
and they started smelling uh, decomposition uh, of flesh. And, uh, you know, as they walked on this little farm trail, it got stronger and stronger until they came up upon, you know, a body. And they, they, did, they weren't sure if it was human because the face had been eaten off. So they could not tell from the face that it was a human face. They thought, oh, well, this is maybe a deer carcass, which is not an unusual sight in Michigan farm country. Uh, and then they saw an ear with an earring on it. And they panicked. Uh, they jumped in the, the car, uh, uh, went to the Michigan State Police, made a report, and then the police came out, uh, you know, found the body. And it was the worst thing that many of these hardened detectives had ever seen. The, the body was just battered and it had been out for 30 days. So the local animals and, and uh, insects and everything had not been kind and her feet were missing and they weren't cut off they were like they were smashed off with a rock or something something just horrible and just to cut to the chase on this one they found a, a shoe and uh the fleshers 30 days prior had of course made police reports out so the police went to the fleshers home with the shoe and they said, yes, that's Mary's shoe. And then Mr. Flesher had to, uh, had to do his best to identify the body. And that family, I think, suffered, uh, in, in ways that others, uh, didn't suffer as much because, uh, uh, the whole family was kind of under investigation for the first three weeks thinking that, that perhaps somebody in the family or even Mary's father had perhaps killed her. But once it was established that that was not the case, they tried to be as active as they could in trying to find out what happened to their daughter. And that was uh, one of the families that did cooperate with my research. They were reluctant at first, but uh, I think they realized that I wasn't there to write and exploitive uh, expose and that I was genuinely concerned with the history of what happened because it was all muddled and uh, really even people, police who were involved with the case, when I talked to them 40, 45 years later, you know, the details were, were very thin and I'd say, well, this is what, you know, you said in the newspaper or this is blah, blah, blah. And, uh, Five years it took with the help of a, a researcher, and uh, we finally got as much of the information as we could to tell this story. So that was the first one. Uh, the second, Joan Espelf Shell, and she was a 20-year-old, worked at Eastern Michigan University, as did Mary, by the way. They were both uh, EMU uh, uh, co-eds. And uh, she was dating a, a, a guy who was A-W-O-L from Fort Gordon, Georgia. And he, like so many people in the same period, the Vietnam War is going on and there's the draft and whatnot. 
And so he uh, was A-W-O-L. He was hiding out in Ann Arbor, took an assumed name, and uh, he was Joan's boyfriend. Well, Joan was with her parents on a weekend, and uh, she knew that, you know, he was in Ann Arbor waiting to see her. And But the parents took her to dinner, and it was just going too slow for her. And she says, you know, i got to get back to my apartment. I've got to test in the morning. I've got to study, you know. Uh, so she kind of gave the bums rush to her parents after dinner, and they took off. And then she went to her apartment, called him, and uh, he said that, uh, you know, I'm working until, you know, 1230 or whatever. Uh, try to get a ride in, take the bus or something, and I'll meet you at so-and-so's apartment. Well, that was the plan. Uh, she went out to catch the bus, uh, stood there with her roommate, so she didn't be out there you know, at 11 o'clock at night by herself. And while they're waiting, they see the bus pass right by them, going from Ypsilanti into Ann Arbor. Didn't even stop, nothing. Just the guy was in a hurry to end his shift, probably. So she's standing there, really anxious to see her boyfriend, disappointed, and she decides she's going to hitchhike. And she puts her thumb out. Her girlfriend says, you know, I don't know if that's a good idea. Why don't we, you know, call a cab or something? She says, no, I'm running out of time. I'll, I'll just hitchhike. Well, hitchhiking down Washtenaw Avenue, which was the major avenue uh, that connects the two towns of Ipsy and Ann Arbor. Not that hard to, to get a ride in those days. Uh, that's how so many of the college students got around. And other college students would see them and pick them up and, you know, whatever. So it wasn't all that unusual, but still risky. And she puts her thumb out. Three guys in a car come up and, hey, uh, where are you going? Uh, I'm going to, to Ann Arbor. Can you give me a ride? And they said, sure. And she gets in the car. Her roommate doesn't like any of it. She goes back to her apartment. Uh, but... Uh, she got a, a little bit of a, a look at the one guy in particular uh, who was driving the car. Coincidence would have it, when I just told you the story about my girlfriend and I walking down the street, three guys in a car. Yeah. This is the same night. This is the same no day. No way. Oh, my. This, again, is why this story is uh, resonates uh, so much with me. So there they go. They uh, pick her up, and uh, there, there's a lot more. I don't want to tell you the whole book, but uh, the gist of it is Collins leaves uh, these two other guys behind on the pretext of taking Joan into Ann Arbor by himself, and he uh, took her out into the countryside, and uh, the coroner found that she was sexually molested, uh, and she had 25 stab wounds on her body, a number of them on her back, indicating that she had escaped him, uh, ran out of the car, and then he ran after her and stabbed her three times in the back uh, to slow her down, and then, then it got real ugly. So that was the second one. 
The third one, Jane Mixer, I don't want to uh, talk much about. Well, I want to do a timeline real quickly, too. Okay, the first murder, and uh, they find the body 30 days, uh, and, and the police tell the parents, the Fletcher parents, if we don't find this guy within the next 30 days, he'll kill again within the next year. Almost to the day, Joan Shell is murdered. It's about three or four days, less than a week's difference. So that that pro- prophecy, if you will, came true. Then the third murder was March 1969, and that was about nine or months later. But it was still the the time between the murders shortened, and uh, that's part of the grim calculus of serial killers. Is that they they tend to kill more often as they go along. Not always, but it's one of the traits. So on March 20th, uh, this uh, young woman is uh, looking for a ride. There's a ride board. She's a University of Michigan uh, student. On the ride board, uh, there's a map of the United States and uh, then a map of Michigan. There are two different ride boards. So if you're a student and you want to go to wherever, you go to the ride board, and if it's uh, cross-country, you go to one. If it's Michigan, you go to the other. People put notes up there, you know, tack them up there. And she says, I'm looking for a ride uh, to Kalamazoo uh, on such and such a date at such and such a time. And she gets a call. Uh, somebody gives a, a phony name to her, uh, David Johnson, but says, yeah, I'll pick you up, and I can, you know, take you home. I'm going that way. Uh, I, I guess it was to Muskegon, Michigan. And uh, her body was found the next day in the Denton County Cemetery, which is in Wayne County, right next to Washtenaw County, where U of M and Eastern are. So it was just on the other side of the county line, and her body was laid out on a tombstone, and the other murders were very ugly and and what the FBI calls disorganized murders. This is an organized murder. She's basically in her clothes. She's not battered at all, but she's strangled with a nylon stocking, and her body is on the ground. Her skirt and slip and all of that was pulled up around her waist. Her panties and panty hose, and some women said, hey, we didn't have panty hose then. They yeah, they did have panty hose then. And they were down exposing you know, her uh, pubic area. But there was no sexual abuse or anything. Apparently, she was having her period. So... The sex angle wasn't there. The body was not cut up, battered, uh, bruised. It was all laid out. And there was a raincoat pulled over her body, uh, the raincoat that she was wearing, which, which the FBI calls undoing behavior. And the next morning, a kid's walking to, to school in front of the uh, cemetery, and he sees a, a bag on the opposite side of the, the road from the entrance. 
and there's some notebooks and a couple of books, uh, a, 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 a present or two in there, a card and whatnot. And he sees it, and he figures, well, this isn't right. So he picks it up. He goes back home again and says, hey, Mom, I found this out in the street and whatnot. So she looked at it, and it was the bag was stained at the bottom, and she looked closer, and it was blood. Well, the, the son had to catch his bus. He's gone. The mom looks at the packages to see you know, if she can find who to send it to, finds blood. And, of course, she panics. So she goes out looking around and, you know, in front of the graveyard there where the bag was found. And she looks into the entrance and at one of the graves close to the entrance, she sees Jane Mixer's body. So that, that's, that's an interesting story, too. But uh, several of the police say, you know, this first murder, the second murder, we see similarities. But this third one, something's, you know, it's just not right. Something's not right about it, but the press gets a hold of it. There are three unsolved murders of co-eds. So all of a sudden, he becomes known as the co-ed killer. Now, history knows the co-ed killer as being somebody else on the West Coast, Robert Kemper. And, and that happened maybe 10 years later, and, and he got dubbed with, he's known today as the co-ed killer. But uh, in those days... He was the co-ed, local co-ed killer, and that sent the whole city into panic, and hence the title Terror in Ypsilanti. So a few, uh, not more than three weeks later, so again, the period between the murders shrinking, uh, somebody called Marilyn Skelton is found murdered, and uh, she was a uh, street waif, runaway, She'd been running, uh, run away from home when she was 15 and had been running around with local hippie royalty in the area. And, uh, she got right in, uh, with them, but she was kind of, uh, well, she was young, uh, but, uh, an opportunist. She needed places to stay. In other words, she did a fair amount of drugs and acid and, uh, was passed around uh, a little bit. You know, very ugly story. So Mar- uh, Marilyn is, is found, and her body is battered worse than any of the others. And uh, part of the reason for that is, uh, we think, uh, some of us think, is that Marilyn had some background in uh, karate. She'd taken it through a uh, you know, continuing ed kind of thing, night school, and took classes uh, in it. And there's some thought that she fought Collins and kicked him, you know, in the groin uh, pretty hard and just, you know, sent him into a a greater rage than he would have been. And he did unspeakable things to the body. And uh, this is the first case that Washtenaw County Sheriff uh, is pulled in on uh, Doug Harvey. Doug is a very, uh, and I've gotten to know him since doing this research, but uh, very controversial county sheriff uh, during the Vietnam period. And he had a lot on his plate, but but still he was a typical kind of boss hog (laughs) kind of county (laughs) sheriff. And when he got onto this case, 
he, and, and you know, a little bit of investigation that uh, she's known with uh, hanging around with hippies and so on. And there's one hippie in particular called John Sinclair. And uh, he was like the, the guru for uh, the University of Michigan, although he didn't go there. All of the counterculture people gravitated around him and, and his group uh, called Trans Love Energies. You know, there's just a, a typical uh, right out of central casting uh, story. And uh, the sheriff was bound and determined to prove that drug crazed hippies had killed Marilyn. And uh, this is the most extensive investigation of any of the murders. And uh, it turned into a witch hunt. But a fascinating story. She's a book, and the, and the story of her murder is a book in and of itself. And I had to cut out 33,000 words out of my original manuscript. And, and many of them were about Marilyn Skelton because the story got mired down in minutiae that didn't lead anywhere or contribute to solving her case. This was just the county sheriff playing his hunch that normal people don't commit these kinds of murders. It has to be, you know, drug-crazed hippies. So uh, that's an incredible uh, case. But now uh, we're at four. And uh, not long, uh, three weeks after that, Don Basom, 13-year-old eighth grader at uh, West Junior High School uh, in Ipsy. And I'm going to digress a little bit and tell you that one reason why I'm the man to write this story is because, uh, you know, I've got my own personal thing I've been over, but I taught Nipsalani for quite a few years at Ypsilanti High School. I would have had Don as a a freshman in uh, English class. And all those years had passed, and I started doing research and putting it out there on Facebook. And a lot of my old students said, hey, I'm Don's friend. I I was with Don the the night uh, that she went missing. I was this. So these people surfaced, and they were a lot of my students, you know, from all those years ago. So I I had that insight into what went on with Don in particular, but the the greater Ypsilanti story. And I'm I'm still friends with a number of my my students from way back in the day. And uh, that's one of the few good things that came out of this for me. So Don, 13 years old. And uh, she's brutalized, uh, but not to the extent of Marilyn Skelton. Her body is dumped on the side of a country road. And early the next morning, a guy uh, driving his pickup truck, going to work, looks off the side of the road, and there is her nude body. And he calls the police. The first one there was the county sheriff. First one on the scene. And, uh, I mean, he's all over these, uh, the rest of these cases, like white on rice. You know, he's taken it as a personal affront to him. And he was close to making an arrest. Uh, uh, this is a little bit later. And uh, the day before, uh, the story breaks. And uh, an Ypsilanti 
Eastern Michigan University rookie cop basically breaks the story. But Doug Harvey was wanted to get this guy off the street. So, I mean, everybody was happy. So, Don. And then there's another one uh, two months later. Again, the time between the murders is, is short. And uh, Alice Callum, she is a U of M student as well. And so uh, I met a guy who was in a place, uh, it was called the, the, not Depot Town, that's a place, but uh, it, it was an old abandoned train depot in Ann Arbor, and uh, it would be rented out for parties and uh, dances, different things like that. So there was a birthday party for a musician that she was going to, and Alice ran in to Collins there, and uh, Collins danced with her for a while, started doing some heavy petting and whatnot. Anyway, she decides to go with him and gets on the back of his motorcycle and just drives off into the distance. Her body was found uh, on an abandoned farm, on a dirt lane like most of these girls, and uh, again found by three teenagers walking across the field you know, a shortcut to some place, and they came upon the, uh, this carnage uh, for this uh, young woman too. And uh, there was a, a, a Collins connection here because apparently he had known her and he had been uh, out on a date with her in the afternoon as well. And again, that's that gets to be a, a more complicated uh, story than I think I want to go into here. So it's real hot in Ypsilanti. The police are closing in on uh, Collins. He's also got this uh, crew of, uh, of thieves, and the police are just starting to close in on him. So he decides, hey, I'm going to rent a, a camping uh, trailer, I think 17-foot trailer or whatever, uh, and uh, him and one of his uh, people who uh, live in the boarding house with him drive out to California, and they want to basically lay low out there for a while, a month or two, and uh, they, you know, then come back into town. They're not out there more than a few days, and Collins picks up, a, a, I believe she was 17 years old, a Roxy Ann Phillips, and she uh, is from Portland, Oregon, trading some babysitting uh, chores uh, with uh, a family friend, you know, for room and board and to be able to hang out in California and one thing or another. So the first time she'd been away from home uh, by herself. So uh, apparently uh, Collins uh, picked her up in the car. There's more to it again, like all, all of these murders. Picked her up uh, under the pretext of dropping her off at her friend's house and uh, Collins had met the friend the day before, and apparently Roxy and the friend talked, and uh, John Collins' name came up. Or there was some sort of connection there where she felt safe enough to get into his car. Oh, we're going to the same place, so yeah, let's go together. And once she gets into the car, he takes off. Uh, she can't get out. He's driving like a madman. Uh, there are a couple of uh, people that see him and her together. They're able to identify the car, and then she disappears. And it's a number of days, I don't recall how many off the top of my head, 
that her body is found on not so much a dirt road, but often a, a, a vacant canyon, a Pescadero Canyon. Remember, they're out in California now. And he goes down into the bottom of the canyon. There's a pile of rubbish and trash and stuff. And he dumps her body there, nude body. All that she's got on is around her neck, and it's a belt that he strangled her with. More to the story, he goes to get his uh, car fixed because he knows he's got to get the heck out of there, and he panics. Uh, he, he goes to get the car fixed. Of course, the, at the dealership, they write the license and all you know all that information. The police uh, were able to find out that dealership and got a lot of uh, uh, information. But the thing that really caught uh, Collins or connected Collins' name, because remember, he had been out there three days. Nobody knew him from anybody out there. But one of the investigators who found the body ended up with a real bad case of poison oak. And he thought, well, if I got poison oak down here, maybe he got poison oak too. I'm going to start checking all the doctors around. So they did a dragnet of doctors. And sure enough, they came up with the guy who had, oh, yeah, a few days ago, we uh, I treated somebody for uh, poison oak, and uh, John, his name was John Collins, and blah, blah. They find out the name, and from there, they find out the car. They get the license plate, the whole thing. Well, by that time, him and his friend head back up to, uh, Ypsilanti, and, and, and they get back there. And uh, there, there's a phone call. Uh, one of the detectives uh, calls uh, Ypsilanti uh, and finds out, the state police, and they find out that Collins had also recently, since he had been back, killed his last victim, Karen Sue Bynuman. Karen Sue was 18, uh, freshman, just a real conscientious person. She went to summer school rather than, you know, your senior uh, graduating year. Uh, typically, people want to party before they go to school in September. She started right away at Eastern because she wanted to get through as fast as she, she could. And she also wanted uh, preference in the choice of her dormitory and floor and, you know, all that kind of stuff. So uh, she decides to go to uh, school in the summer, was going to pick up a, a wig. A, a, in those days, they called them falls, uh, a, a hairpiece. She had short hair, but she was going to a wedding the following weekend. So she went to buy this hairpiece, made the mistake of getting on the back of Collins's motorcycle. Uh, he says, oh, I'll take you up there. It's a few blocks away and da, da, da. And he waits for her. She's there in the shop and says to the uh, the owner, you know, I've done two things today that I never did. One is buy a wig, and two, get on a motorcycle with a stranger. Well, every woman, young or old, in Ypsilanti knew that people were being killed, young women were being killed, and uh, Joan Goshi was her name, and the hair on her neck stood up and said, Honey, you know there's a serial killer running around somewhere in, in this town. 
So they talked a little bit, tried to talk her uh, out of going, getting back on the motorcycle. Joan said, hey, my car's out in the back. I'll drive you back to the dorm. And she said, no, I'll walk. So she goes out, goes she and her one of her hairdressers both go out and get a good look at this guy on the motorcycle. Karen gets off the motorcycle. I mean, she gets on it, and then she gets off of it. Like, oh, no, I don't need to ride now. I'll walk. And he talks her again into getting on the motorcycle. And he rides off with her. And then, you know, she was found at the bottom of a small gully uh, in Ann Arbor. And her story uh, is uh, the one that is always told because uh, Collins was uh, identified, brought to trial, and he was convicted of only one of all of these murders. The prosecutor decided to only try one case. Part of the reason is because it was the most expensive case that Michigan had ever tried, criminal case. And uh, they wanted to get Collins off the street, and they figured that if there was any appeal or if he happened to get out for any reason, that they had these other cases in abeyance, and then they would bring them in on the next case, and the next case, and the next case. So that was the philosophy. Here is the fly in that ointment. To be officially considered a serial killer, you know, you have to have three convictions, confirmed killings and convictions. Because he, and that's the FBI standard, because Collins was only convicted of one murder, he escaped getting on all of the lists for serial killers. And uh, there haven't been a lot of books written about him. Uh, in fact, just mine and uh, there are two others from way, way back in the day that are both very uh, inaccurate. And so I figured you know, somebody's got to tell this story for history, history's sake. And uh, that was my overwhelming motivation but I got so drawn into it on an emotional level that I think that comes through a little bit in the book as well and uh, it's been quite an experience to deal with the police because they were not particularly cooperative and I, you know, I can understand okay I'm just a ham and agar out there a writer uh, an amateur meddling in police business, all of that. But uh, uh, we did, uh, my researcher, uh, Ryan uh, M. Place, he and I uh, did uh, a lot of uh, Freedom of Information Act requests, and never do you get satisfaction on the first request. They say, oh, we, uh, we don't need it. You know, and so you have to go and appeal it and do a second one, and then they'll give you some, maybe all of them, maybe two or three copies of the same thing. And they charge you about 75 cents a, a copy. So, uh, you know, the, this whole project is, was started to run into a lot of money because we had thousands of copies. Was this a, a Freedom of Information Act request on the federal level? What, what Was the FBI involved? No. Uh, this is... Uh, they, they tried to get the FBI involved, but didn't. It wasn't until that trailer was stolen and taken across state lines that the FBI got involved right towards the end. No, uh, the state police. 
When Johann Rahl received the letter on Christmas Day, 1776, he put it away to read later. Maybe he thought it was a season's greeting and wanted to save it for the fireside. But what it actually was, was a warning, delivered to the Hessian colonel, letting him know that General George Washington was crossing the Delaware and would soon attack his forces. The next day, when Rawl lost the Battle of Trenton and died from two Colonial Boxing Day musket balls, the letter was found, unopened in his vest pocket. As someone with 15,000 unread emails in his inbox, I feel like there's a lesson there. Oh well, this is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Every episode, we look at the bad ideas, mistakes, and accidents that misshaped our world. Find us at constantpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Everybody shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. Hello, everyone. You may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Brenna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore all of the weird little questions and conspiracies of the universe in our new podcast, Mystery of Everything. Everything has an explanation. We hope. But that is what we're here to figure out. We will dive into the science behind many popular conspiracy theories, such as vaccines causing autism, flat earth theory, and was the moon landing fake? And if so, why the heck would anyone even do that? But it's not just conspiracies. There's a lot of cool mysteries that we will attempt to use science to explain, such as near-death experiences, what made the Vikings go berserk, and can I control my co-host with MK Ultra? Wait, what? <laughs> anyway, make sure to check out the Mischief Everything podcast everywhere where you find your podcasts. Hi, I'm Matt Albers, host of the Pirate History Podcast. The men and women of the golden age of piracy are some of the most infamous and often misunderstood characters in all of human history. You know their names. Captain Morgan, Anne Bonny, Henry Avery, Mary Reed, Captain Kidd, Blackbeard. But do you know their stories, their real stories? Every week over on the Pirate History Podcast, we explore the real lives of these pirates. We examine what made these pirates sail the high seas in search of plunder and adventure and revenge. The real stories are a lot more complex and a lot more interesting than the stories most of us have been told. If you'd like to hear the stories of the real men and women who went on the account and sailed under the black flag, join us on the Pirate History Podcast. What was the, the key for police? What connected call-ins to the murders? Well, there were a couple of things. 
the one I touched on, so I'll hit on that first. Uh, a rookie of Eastern Michigan University cop happened to be on a, a fraternity that played intramural sports against the Theta Chi's. And early on in Collins' college career, he was the Theta Chi. So they played against each other. And uh, so they knew each other, didn't know each other's name, but, you know, you get pretty close and you get to know somebody, what they look like. So he, he's a cop, and he happened to be on patrol on the day that Karen Sue Bynum got on the back of uh, Collins' motorcycle. And so, you know, he, he just kind of casually noted that he knew Collins. He didn't know the girl on the back or anything. But then the murder occurred in one thing or another, and he decides he's going to go out and do his own personal investigation. And he, he knew where Collins lived. It was just really up the block, across the street, the other end of the block. So uh, he went over there and uh, said, hey, uh, Collins, hey, I'm so-and-so, uh, police and uh, in town. And we played together and they did the small talk, you know. Oh, yeah, I remember we played touch football or whatever it was. So uh, Collins says, well, what do you... And he's working on his motorcycle. He says, uh, uh, wow, what can I do for you? And he says, well, I'm, I'm investigating the murder of that co-ed from uh, a few days ago. And uh, my job is to go around and write down the license plate uh, of uh, every motorcycle person on campus. And he knew, noticed, and I see, I knew, knew this guy too. His name's Larry Matthewson, another link I have to the story. So Larry is there taking a few notes, and the license plate on the motorcycle, and it was the same motorcycle that uh, Karen Bynaman was on, was bent up, you know, just below the, the place where it attaches with the screws. It was bent up. And people do that. So it makes it difficult for police or for somebody to read their license plate. You still have a license plate on it, but it can't be read. So that's suspicious in and of itself. And so Collins started getting real nasty. He started cussing out Larry and get the hell out of here, go play cop somewhere else, you know, demeaning kind of stuff. Well, he went back to his people at the at the. Uh, college police station and said, hey, I think that, you know, we've got somebody uh, uh, that uh, is a potential suspect. Uh, I know know him. His name is John Collins. He's got the bike. I think I saw him riding with somebody on the, uh, a young woman on the day of and, and all of that. Well, while that's going on, concurrently, a state policeman who is is married to Collins's aunt, and they live in Ipsy. So they come home from their summer vacation, and they had asked Collins to take care of their dog for two weeks, which he did. And the dog was a big German shepherd, a real mean, a barker, and chained up in the garage, and the garage door open maybe a foot or so to give some air circulation. And Collins was supposed to come over there and feed the dog every day, give him water, clean up uh, after him, uh, uh, and so on. So the state policeman comes home uh, with his wife, and they notice that there are some things wrong. 
there's some skid marks on the kitchen floor and Collins's aunt was a clean freak. And before everybody went on vacation, the house had to be spotless. So they came home to a clean home. But then she comes home and she sees that there are these heel marks along the kitchen floor. The next morning, they go down in the kitchen. She's looking for some things, and she can't find them. And it just, there's something wrong. She calls her husband to come down there and talks it over with him. Uh, uh, and, you know, he just kind of files it away. He's thinking, oh, hell, I got to go back to work, you know, state cop. So the day before he's to show up, he goes over to the station just to make sure of the schedule and everything. And the chief of the state police there, the captain, says, uh, hey, would you come into my uh, office? I want to talk to you. And he says, uh, you know, those girls that have been uh, missing, uh, your nephew is under investigation for those murders. And he said, no. And, uh, I, you know, I wasn't there for the conversation, but uh, he might have said something like, oh, really, uh, that might explain some strange things we found in our house because uh, John Collins, uh, he was taking care of our dog. And when we got back, there were some things missing and not in the right place and so on and so forth. And so, you know, all of the red uh, lights went on at the same time. They sent a forensic crew to the basement they found some specks of blood. They, they found small clippings of hair because uh, Like would, uh, he had three sons and, you know, he gave them home haircuts. Haircuts are expensive. You do it at home. And it was in the basement. And the, it's just horrible, but there's no other way to get around it. Uh, when the body was found several days later, and an autopsy was performed. Uh, Karen Sue Bynaman, like a number of the other girls, had uh, foreign matter shoved up into her vagina. And her panties were shoved up there. And on those panties were short clippings of hair that were picked up in the basement. And then they went and they arrested him. And then it took over over a year to prosecute him. So, and that, that's kind of the summary. And because they're so, the stories are so rich with detail uh, that uh, it, it really takes that long just to give a thumbnail. And I go into each one with some detail. And I made a particular point of trying to be as hundred percent accurate as I possibly uh, could and I used in-text documentation because I wanted to get the story out I wanted it to read like a story not like a academic ac account and so I, I try to make it reader friendly and uh, I think I succeeded because the book has done uh, real well it's a for a, a, an independent book it's a bestseller and I'm having uh, right now uh, I, ha I had a, a media company in Canada show some interest in it. They paid me a couple grand for a two-year option to, to possibly develop it. And uh, I found out just a few months ago that this media company hired two lady authors. And I like that because I didn't want a, uh, a slasher movie. But two 
lady writers to write a pilot for a possible six-part miniseries. And it would be independent. I don't know what we're talking or, you know, if it'll ever actually transpire. And, and probably by the time it gets made, I'm 71. Who knows if I'll ever see it? But, uh, I feel real good about it. The media company has some skin in the game. Wow, that's great. Congratulations. So, a motive. Um, was there some traumatic experience that you think Collins ha- had as a child? Or, or was he simply just a remorseless psychopath? Uh, well, nobody rightly knows for certain. Uh, and I, I certainly have a view of it. And my first view is that he probably has some mental problems that uh, e- either he was born with or or that developed. His mother uh, divorced his father uh, when John was five in, in Windsor, uh, Ontario, and then they moved to the United States where where his mother was from so they could be close to family and, and whatnot. And she uh, raised three kids, and John was the, the third. Uh, and frankly, I think he was the unwanted child. Uh, the father came home from World War II. He lost his left leg and uh, almost died and, you know, had, had post-traumatic stress. So battle fatigue uh, is what they called it in World War II. And it had to be tough for this uh, young, vibrant, woman who liked to dance, liked to drink, liked to party, and now she's got to take care of her husband. Well, you know, she has the kid, uh, and I don't think she ever gave him the love and the attention that he he should have had. That, that's me talking, because I don't, don't know. But when John talks about his mother, he talks about her like she's a saint, and she was not a saint. But the police and the press, when they talked about her, they called her and her daughter both prostitutes. And that was not true either. You know, you know how you got to demonize people and uh, it makes for a better story, I guess. So he, uh, I think, had a lot of resentment over his sister. She was a couple years older. And mom now had her little alter ego. So I think mom and the sister were real tight, and John was just kind of a nuisance, you know? And I believe he probably absorbed that feeling and anger because of it. He had a a stepfather came in, adopted all three of the kids, and uh, he was, by all accounts, a a violent alcoholic. And uh, there was uh, some violence in the home, and... uh, I think uh, John got uh, knocked around uh, pretty well by uh, by him. Uh, he was uh, divorced, so Mom now had been divorced twice. And to really make ends meet, she was a waitress, and she, and she waitressed at good places because if you're going to be a waitress, work someplace where the tips are good. So she worked in some of the better restaurants in Detroit. It was a hard worker, sometimes a couple of different jobs. And, again, she's not home that much. Well, John uh, and, and his family, they, uh, sister and brother, all go 
to a Catholic school. And mom can't be there to inculcate the kids and whatnot. Well, it's in a Catholic school and they can learn uh, morality and all, whatever they learn over there. So he's in this Catholic school situation. And it turns out his brother was a great athlete. Well, John aspired to be a good athlete. And he had to work hard because he had to, you know, compete with his brother. And he actually became a better athlete than his brother. He lettered in baseball, basketball, and football. He was the big man on campus. And he had one of the cheerleaders uh, as a girlfriend and whatnot. I'm getting to the end of this. (laughs) Mother has dark and medium-length hair pierced ears, and so on. The girlfriend had dark hair, medium to short length. She drops him. After three years off and on of being a couple, she says, I'm going to a different college. You're going to that college. I want to meet new people, all of that. It devastated him. So here's the trigger. His mother, he feels, has rejected him his whole life. He is now rejected by the only other human being that he connects with and that has an emotional relationship with. He gets rejected by her. It's not that many months later that these young women start turning up dead. They've all got brunette hair. They've all got short to medium length. Most of them wore earrings. I'm trying to think of, you know, the pierced earrings and so on. And that those traits became part of the M.O. that was in all the newspaper, radio, television, and not all of the girls had the brunette hair, but, you know, it's, it's, again, it's that's how it got portrayed in the paper. Uh, one of the girls had recently dyed her hair strawberry blonde, uh, the 13-year-old the year who got killed, strawberry blonde, a couple days before she got murdered. So uh, she had brunette hair but not at that moment so a lot of little details like that just didn't add up and made it real difficult for the police to to get a strong case but when they did man they jumped on him with both feet yeah uh from the way he treated the bodies of those poor young women he murdered it, it sounds like he had some real rage towards women in general Real anger, and I think that, uh, you know, he is obviously psychotic. He's a narcissist. He's a compulsive thief. He's a compulsive liar. So there are lots of things that indicate that he's just one messed up human being. And all these years, 50-some, in prison in Marquette, Michigan, on Lake Superior, I mean, that's a miserable place to be up there in the winter. And uh, he still insists that he's he's innocent and that basically I have been his, uh, I've been persecuting him for the last five years. And he finally put his uh, <laughs> foot down and uh, wrote a letter to the Detroit Free Press saying what a terrible human being I am. And that my mouth is bigger than the Grand Canyon and all this stuff. And he sends it to the newspaper. Well, they ran it. 
and I ran it too. I ran it everywhere uh, because that was great advertising for me. There's nothing much to smile about in this whole terrible story, but that gives me some laughs. And he called me a couple of weeks before Christmas, I think it was three years ago. And if somebody says, uh, hey, this is a, a Marquette prison. We have uh, uh, one of our inmates wants to talk with you. Would you like to speak with him? Or, you know, do you want the call to go through? And I said, yeah, sure. And my wife was sitting there. So otherwise, I wouldn't even believe this happened. And uh, so he gets on the phone. And he says, uh, Ken. And I said, uh, no, this isn't Ken. This is Greg. Greg. No, I'm calling Ken. And I said, no, because I I knew who it was because the operator had told me. I said, no, this is Greg Fournier. I'm the guy who wrote the book about you. And he goes, well, what? How did this, you know, he's lying to me. First thing, out of the box, a lie. You know, you don't butt dial somebody. In fact, he's got a pay phone he's got to stand at to make a phone call. Uh, So he did, you know. He had my number and he called me. So we went back and forth. He says, you know, the, the girlfriend incident. He says, that wasn't me. And I said, oh, I don't know, John. And he said, I was there too. That sure looked like you. And so yeah, it wasn't going all that well. But uh, before he had to get off the phone, he said this. And this did resonate with me. He, said, he thanked me for the book. He said, I want to thank you for treating my family fairly in your book. And I I really tried to. I I made a real point because I didn't want this to be any harder on the families, any of them, than than it had to be. Telling the history is painful enough. They didn't, a lot of them didn't want to hear it. So uh, I thought, well, okay, I guess I did succeed at something. And, uh, you know, that was surprising. Yeah. So did you get the feeling that he actually remembered his his encounters with you from 50 years ago? No, no. I have the, now, right now, he's, I'm sure, seen a lot of pictures of me and whatnot. I'm all over the internet, and believe it or not, these guys have some internet access, so. And friends that have told him about my books. He claims he's never read my book, but I know it's on his shelf, so. Yeah. Well, we're running a little over, I know, and we really didn't even get to touch on the trial. Um, but, but those details are in your book uh, for those listeners who'd, who'd like to learn more. Yeah, and uh, there is one thing that uh, I would like to bring up. And people ask me who uh, aren't from the Ipsy you know, area in southern Michigan where they're familiar with the case. They say, uh, why write about him? Uh, Nobody ever heard about him. How come we don't know uh, more about him? And it wasn't that he wasn't notorious enough and the the details of the the murders aren't lurid enough. What happened is there was coast-to-coast and some international interest in this case. And then when it went to trial, uh, of course, you have to pick a jury. So... The first week of trying to pick a jury, that weekend, out in the Hollywood Hills in California, the Helter Skelter murders took place. When that happened, it drew all of the press, except the local press, the international and the national press, it drew them out of Ipsy 
out to the Hollywood Hills. And, of course, that story was a circus in the making. And it, it lived up to everybody's expectations in that regard. But my guy, eh, I shouldn't say it like that, uh, John Norman Collins in court and everything, his lawyers told him, don't say anything, uh, just sit there, you know, just be there, look as a boy next door as you can. Here's some clothing, uh, suits, ties. His mom, would, you know, dressed him up so, uh, you know, he'd be presentable in court. She'd buy him stuff, and you know, so he didn't wear the same thing every day. And, and that's pretty much how that played out. He uh, was only uh, convicted of the one murder. Most of the press went for the, uh, the uh, uh, Charles Manson story. And what many people fail to realize about Charlie Manson is he didn't kill any of those people, you know, and he was the catalyst for it. But everybody thinks Charlie Manson and the family, and they went out and killed all these people. He didn't kill anybody. Uh, well, he claimed to have murdered uh, a number of people on other occasions. But, uh, you know, he that's not what he was in jail for. And, of course, he... He incriminated himself because he was a whack job. So, yeah. And speaking of California, they wanted to to extradite him, didn't they? Absolutely, and uh, that never happened. It was Governor Ronald Reagan in California and uh, William Milligan in uh, Lansing, uh, Michigan, and they went back and forth. Uh, the, the California case was a slam-dunk case. Slam-dunk. The case in Michigan was a little dodgier, but there was no way that the governor, after seven murders have been committed, that the governor would extradite Collins to, to California. So they went back and forth, back and forth, and eventually what happened is there were some uh, a prison riot in San Quentin, California, and I believe six or eight of the, I think it was six, inmates were killed in the riot. Well, California had to adjudicate all of those cases, and they were not interested at that point in pursuing a case about an out-of-stater who was murdered by another out-of-stater. And I guess it makes sense when you think of it like that. So they dropped it, and uh, Michigan was able to convict Collins. And he is in prison for life. He will never get out. Well, they'll never get out. But, uh, you know, I was afraid maybe with COVID and then somebody saying, oh, he's an old man now and all that. But, uh, no, he'll never get out. He's still... uh, psychotic by uh, all the accounts that that I get from from people and uh, I have had several people over the years act as moles for me and they'd write Collins or a couple of them were already writing Collins and then he started getting crazy with them several women and get suggestive and sexual you know it was progressive and then they quit writing him and and whatnot and I had three different women send me his prison letters that they that he wrote to them i didn't have the letters that they wrote to him 
but I want to tell you, I get 30 or more letters. And, uh, you know, a lot of it's a bunch of lying stuff. But you can still get a real feel for how this guy manipulates reality in a way that helps him with his narrative. So how can people get your book? How can they learn more about you? My book is offered on uh, Amazon and uh, uh, by the title uh, uh, or by my name, Gregory A. Fournier. I have my own website. Uh, it tells you more about my books and a little bit about me. Uh, and it's GregoryAFournier.com. And you go there and that'll take you back uh, uh, redirect you to uh, Amazon, and that gives people uh, uh, some background uh, on the, on the story. You know, to decide whether or not they they want to read it. The book is in three parts. The court case is has uh, as many uh, phenomenal things in it as the the murder portion of the book, and then what is exclusive in my book, part three is a lot of information I found from the Michigan Department of Corrections and all his years in prison and uh, a lot of the uh, notoriety that he's gained uh, since he's been in prison. So uh, uh, it, it's quite a round uh, portrayal of the murder, the murderer, and his fate. Well, this has been so interesting. Thank you so much. Oh, I, I enjoyed it thoroughly. Again, I have been speaking to Gregory Fournier. His book is called Terror in Ypsilanti, John Norman Collins Unmasked. This has been another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast, broadcasting to every dark and cobweb corner of the world. I'm Eric Rivenis. Have a safe tomorrow.